Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed QED in San Francisco, I'm Rachel Myro in for Alexis Madrigal. We should create American centers of technology near research universities in every state in this country by the end of the decade. That ambitious proposal comes from Silicon Valley Congressman Ro Khanna in his new book, Dignity in a Digital Age. But in a world where Silicon Valley looks to other countries for a sizable chunk of its up-and-coming tech talent, who's going to make Google and Apple and all the rest invest in middle America? Well, we're going to put that question to Congressman Ro Khanna directly and get his take on what's happening in Ukraine. That's all coming up next after the break. Welcome to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro in for Alexis Madrigal. Representative Ro Khanna is out with a new book, Dignity in a Digital Age. Many passages read like the congressman is angling for his next job in tech journalism. But Kana's in Congress, so let's ask him this hour how he'd like to use his political position to spread the wealth of Silicon Valley to other parts of the country economically stuck in neutral. Welcome, Congressman Kana. Thank you for joining us today. It's a privilege to be on. Let's talk about Ukraine first. You've said you think President Biden made the right decision not sending U.S. troops into Ukraine. Why do you think that, and do you think that's the way going forward? The president has done a magnificent job rallying all of our allies and NATO to condemn Putin's invasion, to make it clear that it is illegal that it's morally reprehensible. I was with Speaker Pelosi in Munich. I saw firsthand Secretary Blinken working to build this coalition. We have crippling sanctions. Uh, We met with the German Chancellor, uh, Chancellor Schultz. Uh, He has suspended Nord Stream 2. We met with Ursula uh, von der Leyen. She has said that uh, the European Union is going to supply arms to Ukrainians, the president supplying arms. So I think the president's being tough, but he's not going to commit troops Uh, to escalate a war with Russia. You're on the House Armed Services Committee. What do you know about the talks that are going on right now? Well, I obviously support any effort of diplomacy, but uh, the Putin and the Russians have to be serious about that. And that means recognizing the territorial integrity of Ukraine. That means recognizing uh, President Zelensky. What is not going to happen is for Ukraine to give up their territorial sovereignty. 
And so if the Russians are prepared to recognize Ukraine's sovereignty, uh, then there can be diplomacy and peace. But Putin has to come to that realization. Uh, and I so admire the Ukrainian spirit. Uh, we, we met with the mayor of Kiev. He's uh, six foot seven. He's a former boxer. And he said uh, people in Ukraine are going to fight for their country. Uh, I think Putin underestimated their resolve. I got to ask the question that's top of mind for, for so many of us. Are you afraid of nuclear war? Obviously, we have to take what Putin says at, at face value, and it is concerning to be that reckless about uh, putting your country on high alert. But this is why President Biden has been so wise in his leadership. He did not respond tit for tat. He didn't say the United States is going to move to high alert. He has done everything possible to de-escalate the situation, uh, to say that nuclear weapons are not as something that we want to use in the 21st century, uh, and to yet be clear that we're going to support uh, Ukraine with weapons uh, in in their struggle for for their own sovereignty. So uh, I believe the administration is doing everything possible uh, to reduce that risk to uh, almost zero. Obviously, though, when you have someone like Putin threatening it, you can't dismiss it out of hand. Moving from the federal government to Silicon Valley, what do you think Silicon Valley companies should be doing during this conflict or, or not doing during this conflict? Well, one of the things is that there are a lot of Silicon Valley companies who have software engineers in Ukraine. And I have heard reports from both crypto companies and uh, tech companies of the uh, their employees. And many of them have done an extraordinary a job in uh, trying to have some of the employees who want to evacuate, uh, evacuate uh, in doing whatever they can with financial resources to assist uh, people in, in Ukraine. Uh, and then I do think that the social media platforms have an obligation uh, to not allow uh, blatant misinformation, blatant Russian propaganda uh, on their sites. And that is something uh, that Facebook, Twitter, YouTube should take very seriously. A lot of cybersecurity experts are bracing for a surge in cyber attacks from Russia. Of course, Russian hackers have been attacking uh, American organizations for years now, and nothing is off limits, not hospitals, not schools. Uh, do you think the federal government is doing enough to, to help harden these targets? The federal government has been extraordinary in our cybersecurity for our most sensitive weapons, for our nuclear technology, for our Defense Department. But frankly, we have not done enough when it comes to our critical infrastructure, when it comes to private companies. Uh, and this is why I've called for a Manhattan Project on cybersecurity, that we really need to invest in the cybersecurity, not just of the Pentagon and our nuclear uh, weapons, but also our critical infrastructure and our private sector. And we need to do simple things such as having the default settings for cybersecurity to be on as opposed to off, such as having some liability regime uh, for our companies that aren't taking the basic safeguards uh, for the security uh, of data. So uh, we can do more and we, we should do more. The things you recommend in your book, and I know you're probably wondering, when are we going to get to the book? Reining in surveillance capitalism, reining in misinformation, doing a better job of spreading the wealth of tech jobs across the country. Do you 
agree it's going to take some action from Congress to force these kinds of changes? Because it, it would seem the market really hasn't delivered. Absolutely, it will. I mean, we need uh, both government action on the economic front and we need uh, it on the misinformation front. Uh, let me give you an example of both. The idea that you could just have an unfettered market and that that would create good jobs in communities across the country has not worked out. I mean, so many of these jobs, so much of the wealth is concentrated in a few geographies. Silicon Valley, the market cap of our uh, area is $11 trillion. To put that in perspective, you can't ca compare market cap to GDP uh, literally, but Russia's entire GDP is $1.6 trillion. And so what has happened over the last 40 years is you've had a concentration of wealth and opportunity in places like Miami, Boston, Silicon Valley, New York, and large parts of the country, rural America, the heartland, black and brown communities have been left out. It's going to take government action to say you can't just have unfettered, unrestricted markets. We have to create economic development, good jobs in communities that have been left out. And it's going to take government action on an Internet Bill of Rights and regulation to tackle some of the incitement of violence on these platforms, the basic invasions of privacy, uh, and also the blatant misinformation that is hurting uh, teenagers uh, on Instagram uh, and that is causing great havoc in our democracy. Well, as you know, there's there's more than a dozen bills in play right now in Congress and also the Senate that would start to tackle some of these issues in in a modern sense. Which bills, I'm putting you on, on the spot now, which bills under consideration now do you think will push big tech in the right direction? Well, I'm for passing something. Jan Schakowsky's bill on privacy is in the Energy and Commerce Bill the Committee. We need to get that out. And what that would do is say you need to consent affirmatively before your data can be used to track you or before your data can be collected. You know, Apple, to some extent, is doing this in their architecture. They are requiring uh, affirmative consent by, for people who use their platform, but we should require it uh, as a law. So I would hope that that privacy bill uh, can pass as a start. Uh, there is also the PACT Act in Congress, uh, which would say that if there's speech on these platforms that is inciting violence, that ought to be removed. It shocks people that the, that's not the case right now. But before January 6th, you had Facebook's private security go to Zuckerberg and say, we know on this platform, there are threats of violence against specific people at a specific time, at a specific place. And the Facebook didn't take those threats off and they didn't report them to law enforcement. That is appalling. And that law should not allow Facebook uh, to sit on that under the broad Section 230 immunity that currently exists. So now, kind of no shade to your congressional colleagues, Amy Klobuchar, Mike Lee, and the like, but, but why aren't you and your fellow Silicon Valley representatives the ones leading the charge on antitrust legislation targeting big tech? Well, we have. I've tried to, I uh, try to lay out the case in uh, my book for the type of antitrust legislation that I think uh, needs to be there. Uh, S Senator Klobuchar has a very good start in saying that tech companies should not discriminate against any vendor or seller. For example, Amazon shouldn't just be allowed to say 
you know, I don't like Ro Khanna, let's not have his book on my platform. And, and they shouldn't be able to just discriminate against sellers. But what I have said is you can't have that as a blanket rule because there may be a time that Apple, for example, may not want to have Parler on its app store. And so you should be able to overcome the presumption of uh, discriminating against a seller if there is something that is consistent with one's company's deep values or uh, necessary for consumer welfare. And I think if there is that balancing test, uh, that would pass the scrutiny of the courts and, and would pass. So I'm hoping that uh, that framework, which I have offered to my colleagues, will be the one that is adopted. You know, uh, you and other California lawmakers have, have been, you know, uh, critical of a, a lot of the fine print in the bills that are being considered. Is that strictly because of the structural market problems, one of which you just identified? Or is it also that some of your colleagues are taking a lot of corporate donations, PAC donations? Well, I take no corporate PAC uh, money. I'm one of 10 members who don't. And I don't think it is because uh, others are, are taking money. I think it's because we have to balance how do you have innovation while having non-discrimination against sellers. Uh, and all, a lot of uh, the colleagues, I mean, I can't speak for all of them, but uh, believe we need strong antitrust uh, legislation, but they want to make sure that that antitrust legislation uh, still allows uh, a choice to kick out things like parlor, still allows uh, integration that would be in the consumer uh, welfare. Uh, you can't have a law, for example, that says I Intel should be broken up into a hundred different markets. And so we have to have thoughtful antitrust, strict antitrust, but it needs to be uh, done in a thoughtful way. The other point on this is... Oh, I'm, I'm going to let you get back to that in just a moment, Congressman. We are talking with Congressman Ro Khanna about big tech, online equity, and his new book, Dignity in a Digital Age. Join the conversation at, with your questions for the Congressman, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Email, post, you're listening to Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro in for Alexis Madrigal. And today we're talking with Congressman Ro Khanna representing Silicon Valley. 
the people within it as well as the companies within it. Uh, and we are getting comments and questions from uh, the audience that I, I want to put to you, Congressman, after once again sharing with people in case they didn't have their uh, phones at the ready last time. 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. We're also monitoring our Twitter account, our Facebook account, uh, at KQED Forum. You can also email your questions to forum at kqed.org. So w- with that, let me just kick off uh, with this uh, comment from Robert. I've appreciated Rokana's work on universal health care, war powers, and other issues, so I was dumbstruck and disappointed to learn he is a millionaire with his family trading over $50 million in stocks in 2021. How does this activity not distract from your job serving the people? Well, it's a very fair question. Uh, I grew up uh, middle class and uh, went to public school and uh, had student loans uh, until uh, I got to Congress. I uh, am very fortunate to have married someone who I love, whose father did very well as an entrepreneur, and she uh, has money uh, prior to the marriage uh, in a family trust. And uh, neither of us trade stocks, but that trust is something uh, that is uh, that I report, and the reporting is about uh, the activities of that trust. But I don't trade stocks. Uh, she doesn't trade it. That's a family trust from prior to marriage, uh, and it's independently managed. You were a, a 2020 presidential campaign advisor to, to Senator Bernie Sanders, and you've called yourself a, a progressive capitalist. I'm, I'm curious, what does that phrase mean to you? A progressive capitalist means I believe in the value of markets. I believe in the value uh, of uh, the freedom to be start a business, to be an entrepreneur. But I think that everyone needs to have health care. Everyone needs to have a free public college uh, opportunity or vocational education. Everyone needs to have childhood uh, opportunities in preschool to be able to take advantage of the market. In in short, I believe everyone should have the opportunities I did to go to a good public school, to have health care, uh, and to have an opportunity uh, to, to succeed. You know, uh, going back to your book, you mentioned math and science education as being such a critical component of setting kids up to succeed in adulthood. And you write about bolstering disappointing programs in large parts of America with, with digital supplements from established schools like Stanford and MIT. But if the pandemic taught us anything, it taught us that kids need strong support where they are. And if they were floundering before going all digital, going all digital wasn't a positive development for them. I agree completely. In fact, in the book, I talk about how you can't have a remote school, that that is something that really doesn't work. You need people going to a physical place in school uh, and you need people in those schools learning about technology because uh, our life, whether you're a journalist or whether you're in politics or whether you're in entertainment, is going to require uh, technical competency. Uh, but I don't think uh, remote education, uh, especially at a K through 12 level, is uh, any substitute for actually being in the classroom. You write in the book, Rural America and mid-sized cities have far more promise in creating the jobs of the future than declining regions in other parts of the world, to which I ask, really? Really? Really meaning? 
really, you know, I, I, I wonder if that's actually the case. I mean, we see right now Ukraine being a classic example. Silicon Valley is already globalized. You know, the largest companies here, even the smallest companies, have, have wings, have product management teams in other parts of the world. Uh, we see, you know, Silicon Wadi. We see, you know, Russia and Belarus as well. Uh, it, it's hard to imagine, and I hesitate to actually name a place in Middle America, but it's hard to imagine some of these other locations that have not uh, thrived in the in the new digital reality are going to thrive more effectively uh, in the near future. Well, I give examples in the book of how that's happening. The most prominent one is Intel investing $20 billion in New Albany, Ohio, which is going to create 3,000 manufacturing jobs, 7,000 construction jobs, revitalizing uh, Northeast Ohio. And then I write in the book about Silicon Holler, which is uh, the phrase of Hal Rogers, a Republican congressman from Kentucky, and how Paintsville, Kentucky is uh, becoming a, a place of a lot of technological uh, jobs. And I write about Alex Hughes, who's making refrigerators and uh, making ovens, but he's doing that uh, with uh, the uh, technical skills that he's developed. What is important, I think, to understand is these 25 million digital jobs are not all going to be software engineers for Google and Facebook. They're going to be jobs in manufacturing. They're going to be jobs in retail. They're going to be jobs in healthcare. And they ought to be distributed. It ought not to be that the people making the computers on wheels, which are modern day automobiles, all the technical folks are in Silicon Valley. Some of those ought to be in Michigan. And so I think if we invest in our land grant universities and our HBCUs and they partner with the private sector, there's no reason that many of these good paying jobs can't be distributed across the country. Let's go now to the phones and Peter in San Francisco. Yes, hi. Thanks for the discussion. Uh, the Communications Decency Act, uh, when or whether that's being reconsidered, that presumably treats uh, social media as though it's a private phone call conversation between you and me, when in fact tens of millions of people getting a single tweet or access to information in social media is really a kind of form of publishing that newspapers only wish they could have that kind of circulation. But the Communications Decency Act exempts them completely from any kind of accountability for the content, which is not the case, for example, for newspapers, and I think is responsible for a huge increase in, in, in misinformation, in all kinds of irresponsible attacks and uh, uh, written attacks and so on on all kinds of folks with no responsibility. If I send a letter to the editor of a local newspaper, the editor, which in fact has happened, the editor says, I need the time to fact check the letter. I said, well, I'm signing it. Uh, you know me as a reliable. Uh, anyway, the editor says, no, if it appears in my paper, I am responsible. I have to fact check everything. And that's not the case for any of this stuff. They have a unique exemption through that act uh, that, as I say, other media don't have, that are liable to basically to libel laws. So is there any consideration of uh, making some change to that? Congressman? Peter, I appreciate that. I discussed this extensively in Chapter 7 of my book, and I think you're right that social media companies aren't just like telephone companies. They do more than just uh, provide wiring, they actually are making content decisions. 
On the other hand, they're not also like newspapers. I mean, you have millions of people uh, posting content on that, unlike a newspaper where you can curate the letters to the editor because you may publish 15 of them and can really curate the content. You can't expect the same uh, content moderation of millions of posts, nor would you want that because you want the Me Too movement or the Black Lives Matter movement or the democratization of voices to happen. So we have to find a new regulatory uh, environment for social media. And I try to propose things such as uh, they need to take down posts that have blatant incitement of violence. They need to be held to some basic consumer product safety uh, requirements. If their uh, products are causing harm to teenagers or emotional health issues, that shouldn't be allowed. They should have disclosure requirements so we know what they're doing with algorithms. And the, uh, the proposals that I put forth, I think, are consistent with the First Amendment. Treat them as new media companies, uh, but also recognize their distinctiveness from newspapers or television. Thank you for that uh, awesome question, Peter. Chris writes, I work in the public sector of tech, and it is like the Wild West when it comes to data collection and repurposing that data. I say we need well-thought-out governance that promotes mental health and privacy. The difficulty will be in grandfathering older established systems with a handle on antitrust. We need it yesterday. Uh, I don't exactly see a question in there, so I'll go straight on to what John writes. Since the tech revolution, many new billionaires have been created. If the tax code we now have resembled the tax code that we had in the 1960s, much of that wealth would have been in the U.S. Treasury. Is there any appetite in Congress for passing real tax reform to begin to tax the outrageous incomes and wealth that have accumulated among a very small number of the population? Yes, I'm for a wealth tax. I've often told my colleagues, tax the millionaires and billionaires in my district. Uh, and I'm for that. And that is money that could be then used to get Medicare for all, that could be used to get uh, free public college, that could be used to help uh, pay for uh, child care. So uh, I absolutely think that we need a tax uh, on capital. Uh, that is uh, basically... Uh, how a lot of the multi-million and billion dollars have been created in, in Silicon Valley. And that, was, that is uh, equitable uh, so that we can have everyone benefiting uh, from the digital age. You know, getting legislation passed during the Biden administration so far has, has been a little bit like watching the Democrats try to pull teeth from their own mouths. Do you think Democrats in Washington, D.C. have the political muscle to pass any serious reform, whether it's, I don't know, taxes, antitrust, any serious reform before the midterms shake up the chessboard? Yes, it's important to remember the two main things we have passed already. The American Rescue Plan, which was $2 trillion of investment into the economy. It's why we're at nearly full employment. It's why wages have gone up for working class Americans. It's why uh, we didn't have a, a significant recession. And then we passed historic infrastructure legislation that's going to help uh, in my district with the expansion of BART to Santa Clara with zero emissions buses and is going to help with rural broadband across uh, America. And then we're about to pass legislation that I helped co-author with Senator Schumer and Todd Young uh, and uh, Mike Gallagher. It's the Endless Frontiers, which has been subsumed in the Innovation and Competition Act which will be $200 billion of investment 
in semiconductor manufacturing in this country uh, and um, electronics manufacturing in this country, clean tech in this country. And that has passed the House, it's passed the Senate. I expect it in a couple months to get to the president's desk. Your question is fair on climate, which was part of Build Back Better. We still have to do that. I'm working with Senator Manchin, with others in the Senate to get to a compromise so we can pass something. So six years after you started in Congress, would you say that you feel hopeful about the future in Washington, D.C., or disillusioned? I mean, we're talking about corporate capture. We're talking about gridlock. But, but it sounds from what you're saying like you do see movement, like, like you do feel hopeful. I feel very hopeful. I'm hopeful about the next generation of people who are getting elected to Congress. I'm hopeful about uh, our understanding that we uh, left out a lot of people for 40 years under a framework of globalization and neoliberalism. And now we need to invest in places to give them economic opportunity, that we need to do more to give the working class a real shot at the American dream. But uh, Rachel, what we're trying to do is very hard. We're uh, trying to become a, the first major multiracial, multi-ethnic democracy in the world. Sometimes people in Canada object when I say this, but I point out we're 60% white, non-Hispanic. Canada is 80-some percent white, as is Germany, as is England, as is Australia. When my parents came to this country in the 1960s, your uh, immigration was 90% European. That today has fallen to 15% European. So what we're trying to do is very, very difficult. And I have confidence as with every new class that comes into Congress that we're getting closer uh, to that idea. Uh, you arrived in Congress in, in 2016. W was there a moment, and what was that first moment when you realized, whoa, I am not in Northern California anymore? Well, as my brother uh, often jokes, 2016 was the year anyone could get elected. As you remember, that was the year Donald Trump became president. And it was a, uh, a rude awakening. I had thought I would get elected to Congress and go to Congress to work with President Hillary Clinton. I never expected Donald Trump to win. Uh, that first year was disorienting. You had everything from uh, the Muslim ban that he was announcing to his uh, to the xenophobia he was espousing, and then soon after the uh, awful scenes of uh, families being torn apart at, at the border. Uh, you know the Trump years were not easy years, and we pushed very hard to to resist uh, the the policies that I thought were fundamentally against American ideals. But uh, since President Biden has, has been elected, uh, we really you feel we are making progress. We are uh, back in the Paris Accords. I was with, in Munich to see how the president has restored our international alliances. We now have a positive economic agenda that's not just about tax cuts. So that has it's obviously much more invigorating uh, serving in Congress uh, with President Biden than it was with Donald Trump. After reminding listeners, you are more than welcome to join this conversation by calling 866-733-6786, emailing us for forum at kqed.org or posting on Twitter or Facebook. Let's head to the phones again to talk to Kevin in San Francisco. Yes, hi, Congressman. As income inequality has spiked, <clears throat> I think the least Congress should do is to eliminate the cap on Social Security contributions. Uh, you know, so that so that uh, you don't have people like Laura Ingram and others, other plutocrats stop contributing in January each year. If you make two million dollars, uh, you stop paying in January. Uh, and that's not fair. Ninety four percent of workers pay 
and Social Security in every paycheck. So maybe we could have a raise in Social Security and stop hearing about Social Security going bankrupt if everybody paid on their income as opposed to just the, the bottom 90%. I completely agree with you. This is something everyone from President Obama, Bernie Sanders, has championed. Uh, it basically, after $250,000, you ought to still be paying into Social Security. If you do that, we would be able to not just have Social Security be solvent, we would be able to increase the benefits for Social Security recipients, which are particularly important in a high cost of living uh, moment uh, and in high cost of living places like the Bay Area. So. I am on legislation uh, to do exactly what you're saying. It has support in the House. We need to build support in the Senate and get it to the president's desk. Thanks so much for that question, uh, Chris. Stephen writes, it's a great idea to try to spread the wealth concentrated in Silicon Valley to underdeveloped parts of the country. But so far, the discussion does not appear to recognize why Silicon Valley is where it is. Not every community left behind has UC Berkeley and Stanford in the neighborhood. Silicon Valley grew up where the tech talent uh, existed and was produced. Uh, not so much a question there. Same thing for Noah, who tweets, I am a CEO of a small startup in the Bay Area, and we have employees that live in Philadelphia, Sarasota, Portland, and Guadalajara. This has been great for our company, the employees and the smaller markets they live in. Um, let's find a question here in the comments. Jeffrey tweets, what are the connections you see between Silicon Valley, the climate crisis, and the war in Ukraine? And what are the solutions for that intersection? Boy, is that a big question. That uh, reminds me of a college admission essay question. Uh, the, let me uh, just on the comment make a point. I completely agree that you can't just replicate Silicon Valley everywhere. And I spent a lot of time in the book discussing that. The point is not that every place is going to have Google and Apple and, uh, and these uh, multi-trillion dollar companies, nor do I think every place would want that. The point is we're going to have 25 million of these digital jobs for many Fortune 500 companies. That's more than manufacturing and construction combined. And you can get a lot of these middle class uh, digital jobs in places uh, across the country. They don't all have to be concentrated. And so, but the caller, uh, the, the, the comment is right that you can't just replicate Silicon Valley and the efforts to do that have failed. A very interesting question on Silicon Valley climate in Ukraine. I think the one thing we realize is that we shouldn't be dependent on Russian gas. Uh, we shouldn't be uh, dependent as much as we are on, uh, on fossil general. fuel. It's a conversation we'll continue in just a moment. We're talking with Congressman Ro Khanna about his new book. Stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro in for Alexis Madrigal talking with Congressman Ro Khanna about his new book, Dignity in a Digital Age, as well as Ukraine, as well as the tax code, as well as antitrust legislation, pretty much anything. If you have a question you want to put to the congressman, don't hesitate. Give us a ring right now. We're at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Available also by all the other uh, reliable channels. You can even email us at forum at kqed.org. Uh, with that, why don't we uh, head to a caller now, Andrea in San Francisco. Hello. Can you Hi. hear me? We can. How are you doing, Andrea? I'm doing all right. Thank you for taking my call, you guys. Thank you so much. I have a million things I could ask about. <laughs> There's a lot going on one. here that... <laughs> Right. But I would like to talk about Medi-Cal here in California. We need federal funding. Uh, Medi-Cal recently was ranked 40th out of 50 states. Um, there's been a lot of trouble with um, the, the managed care uh, players. We've had to reboot this last year, and they, uh, for-profits have had to sign new contracts and rebid. And the non-for-profits have had to sign new contracts because the care has been deemed so abysmal. I'm a consumer of Medicare, Medi-Cal, excuse me. I'm a Medicaid recipient that lives in the county of San Francisco. My question is, I have not read the book yet. I'm dying to. I have to check it out of the library. Um, do you have a plan? Does someone have a plan? Can we please get a plan for some increased federal funding for Medi-Cal? We need money if it's going to survive as far as providing decent service. Right now, the, I think what I, I may be incorrect on this, but from what I think I read for uh, the calendar year 2021 was $18 was the average reimbursement fee for a, an appointment for a uh, Medi-Cal appointment, not just the average. For well, one, let's let the congressman get in going. on it. Uh, any thoughts, Congressman Khanna, about uh, what federal support might be forthcoming to, to help Medi-Cal be a more effective, efficient, humane program? Absolutely, and this is why we need the president's bill back better, because part of that bill has a massive expansion on federal Medicaid funding so that some of that would obviously come to California's Medi-Cal program, and that would increase the reimbursement rates for doctors. It would increase what is covered. It would lower the uh, out-of-patient costs. Uh, Long-term, I believe the solution is Medicare for all without uh, premiums, without the deductibles, and to have higher taxes on the wealthy uh, to pay for it. Uh, but in the short term, if we can get the president's bill through, uh, then it would provide relief uh, to Medi-Cal. Clearly, health care is on the mind of a lot of our listeners uh, today. Lawrence writes, the term Medicare for all scares me. Care providers can currently opt out of serving Medicare patients owing to the low rates Medicare imposed, correct? What happens under Medicare for, uh, Medicare for all? Would it be any different? And then what would low-income folks do? Well, Medicare for All would be uh, like current Medicare that allows uh, people to, to get care. And there are very few uh, doctors or care providers that opt out of treating elderly folks with Medicare. Uh, and it would still allow people to get supplemental 
uh, coverage, if you wanted coverage beyond Medicare. But most people I know who are on Medicare uh, are happy. They're happy that every doctor is more or less in the in network. There may be 5% or so of doctors who don't uh, see Medicare patients, but the vast, vast majority of healthcare providers do. And that should be a choice for, for every American. Um, you write in the book, the central aspiration of this book is to lessen some of the bitterness within our nation. Uh, a quick Google search uh, over the weekend uh, showed me that you've been talking to Amy Goodman, PBS, our, our own TV show newsroom. Are you talking to people on the other side of the political divide during this book tour, or are those invites not forthcoming? No, I have had uh, several invites. I uh, we was, did an op-ed for Fox News, and uh, you can go uh, uh, see that, and it was fairly well-received. I was supposed to go on Fox and Friends, and uh, they invited me and then had to cancel as programming goes. But I, I go on Fox News uh, quite often, in fact, sometimes to criticism from my own side, uh, because I believe in engaging. And in the book, I write about my partnership with Governor Kim Reynolds, a very strong Republican in Iowa, uh, Hal Rogers, who is a Republican uh, in, in Trump's district. I've praised Governor DeWine, an Ohio Republican governor, for what he's doing with Intel investing there. Uh, so obviously, I come from a progressive point of view. I'm very firm in my convictions on things like Medicare for All, uh, universal child care, paid family leave, $15 wage. But I do try to work uh, across the aisle and in coalitions whenever possible. With that, let's go to another caller, Ryan in San Rafael. Uh, hi, Representative Connett. It's uh, uh, Congressman Connett. Um, thank you for being on. I was just wanting to know what the status is of the Farm System Reform Act that you've sponsored along with your colleague in the Senate, Cory Booker. Thank you. I'll take my comment off air. Ryan, I appreciate uh, your raising that. I mean, factory farms are a huge uh, challenge. It's a uh, hurts farmers. Uh, it is a source of extraordinary pollution. Uh, and we're trying to have a moratorium on uh, the, uh, these CAFOs uh, uh, being expanded. And we're also trying to empower uh, farmers as opposed to these uh, conglomerates. One other idea in there is that, you know, 40% of land in the United States, it's, it, it was shocking to me when I learned this, 40% of land in the United States is used for uh, cattle, either feeding cattle uh, or ha uh, having cattle uh, uh, graze. And uh, if we paid farmers uh, for carbon capture, that would be an extraordinary uh, dent uh, in, in climate. So these are ideas I, I don't want to be uh, misleading. I mean, do we still have to build support in, in the House and the Senate for both of them? They don't have majority support in either body. Uh, but both uh, Senator Booker and I are, are working to, to get more and more people signed up. A slightly techier question. Is there any good reason for the government to not block cryptocurrency? It seems to just enable crime, especially with reports that Russia may use it to sidestep sanctions. Well, I disagree uh, respectfully with the, with the caller, especially after the $3.5 billion uh, conversation recently of cryptocurrency. The reality is if you trade cryptocurrency on the exchange, uh, it's actually quite easy for law enforcement to track it. And you have a blockchain ledger uh, where every transaction is traceable. Now, if you have an unhosted wallet, 
and you're not on the exchange, uh, then it becomes harder. But now there are uh, compliance firms that are even able uh, to track uh, some of that. So I, I think we have to regulate cryptocurrencies in a smart way of digital assets to make sure that there aren't speculative uh, schemes. But uh, I am for uh, technology that can decentralize uh, access to finance. Uh, and I think we, what we need is thoughtful regulation on it. Is it your sense that, uh, you know, the, the stereotype of the way behind the times uh, regulator or, or lawmaker is, is just that now, an outdated stereotype? Or, or do you think that, you know, the government is, is uh, not, not catching up fast enough, not, not on the pulse, but always behind the beat, just to keep mixing metaphors there? I think they're behind the beat. They're behind the beat in Europe and in uh, the United States. I mean, for example, in Europe with the GDPR, they said you have to opt in before you give your data. And these tech companies have patterns and ways of uh, designing sites that get people to, to consent. So 95, 97% of people are consenting just because of the design. Whereas Apple, uh, where it was designed by engineers, they're very savvy and they're actually effective in uh, protecting data on that platform. So what I think we need, and I proposed, is for the federal t- uh, FTC to have a technology division, hire a hundred of the best technology minds. You need technologists uh, there to understand how to regu- regulate uh, technology. Otherwise, I fear some of the tech companies will run circles around the regulators. As many would argue, they already do. Um, John writes, you've talked about some of the tax reform policies that you support. Can these bills be passed through the budget reconciliation process? If not, given unified Republican opposition to progressive taxation or anything else that taxes the wealthy, how would passage of any of these reforms be possible? We have to build more support. And uh, one of the ways that I build support is uh, I say, look, I support entrepreneurship. I support innovation. I don't have a problem personally with billionaires. If Steve Jobs became a billionaire, good for him. But I do think that once you create wealth, that we can tax it, that you can have a 3% tax and that's not going to hurt innovation. Uh, and I talked about my father, how I admire his story as an immigrant who created an auto transmission business in Ohio and built wealth. But that once we have the wealth generation, we should tax it and that tax can then go to give everyone a fair shot in our society. We, we have to win that argument. We don't have enough people right now, frankly, in the House or the Senate who are there to vote for it. But my belief is that you get there not by demonizing the entrepreneurs, but by saying that with extraordinary wealth generation, if we have a higher tax, we can have dignity uh, for everyone in this society. And right now we don't. Tony writes, besides raising the cap on the Social Security tax, how about raising the floor on the self-employment tax? Now it begins at $500 of profit. It would help many very small business owners to raise that amount. It's an intriguing proposal, Tony. I haven't thought about it, so I don't want to commit to something on air at the first time I'm hearing about <laughs> it, but I'll certainly, uh, I'll certainly look at it. David tweets, affordable and architecturally beautiful multifamily housing would fight back against billionaire real estate moguls and oligarchy in general. Is this being addressed by the Dems? Absolutely. And it's uh, something I'm acutely aware of, because where you have uh, tech metropolises, places like Silicon Valley, 
it's really great in wealth generation. It creates a lot of jobs. But there are a lot of people in the Valley, as, as you know, Rachel, who are rent burdened, whose wages, particularly in the service sector, have not kept up with the rents. And it's very, very hard to afford a house. And so we need to make sure uh, that we are uh, incentivizing and funding uh, affordable housing. I was just home in Cupertino, where they're opening up a, uh, a center for elderly, which is all about affordable housing. Uh, we need far more of those programs and the federal government should fund it. Again, this was part of the president's Build Back Better. Uh, we passed in the House. We have to get it through the Senate. Let's take another call. Chris in Berkeley, thank you for hanging on to talk with us. Okay, uh, Representative Khanna, uh, the po- as you know, the Postal Service has decided to purchase over 100,000 new delivery trucks, but 90% of them will be powered by gas with mileage as low as 8 miles per gallon. Is there any way to turn this around? I know it's a separate agency, but the federal government is so important in rolling out new technologies, whether it's the Internet, space, vaccines. Silicon Valley has profited from this research the feds have done. How can we get the feds to uh, ramp up electrical vehicles in the federal uh, system? We need to do it. I'm on the oversight committee that has jurisdiction over the postal service. I have pushed as is the chair, Carolyn Maloney, for funding to have the go electric. You know, I was back home and the VTA, I saw electric buses. Now, the reality is an electric bus costs about a million bucks and it goes right now about 150 miles without the, another uh, charge being needed. And a regular bus maybe costs 600, 700,000. So we have to continue to invest in the technology and the battery technology to get the cost of these buses uh, to become lower and to get them to go more miles without needing a recharge. Uh, and that is, again, the need for federal investment. But I, in terms of your view that the Postal Service should start to diversify in terms of, in terms of electric vehicles, I completely support that. And I'm proud that BTA uh, is doing that. Thank you so much for that, Chris. It feels like tech and data collection and AI is progressing more rapidly than the majority of our representatives can understand it. How can we change our legislation of tech so that we're not passing laws protecting our data privacy years too late? It's a very good concern, uh, and this is what we need to act. I mean, I've been in Congress six years. One of the biggest critiques of the book, which I think is a fair critique, is they say, well, what's passed in Congress? You have all these ideas but nothing passes. And it's it's frustrating to me that we haven't been able to even pass simple things such as you should know what your, is gonna happen with your data. You should be able to consent before your data is taken. People should have a fiduciary duty with your data. I think if we pass these basic principles, even if the technology changes, people would still ha- feel uh, protection. Uh, but uh, Congress has been unable to do it. And I'm it's one of my top issues and I'm gonna continue to fight uh, to, to push for it. Andy writes, Representative Khanna has pointed out differences between newspapers and social media, but social media companies actively publish an individualized quote-unquote newspaper to each of three billion active users. Why not just hold the platforms responsible for what they quote-unquote publish to individual accounts, the content that they explicitly put forth through their algorithms? Well, if they are explicitly making a determination of publishing something to an account, I, I think that that is different and that there you could make the argument that that is uh, much more like a, a newspaper as opposed to uh, the general 
uh, site where people can post and share things. So uh, I am open to looking at uh, stricter requirements for things that they are publishing the, directly uh, as, as newsletters. But even uh, apart from that, there is a lot we can do to improve the quality of uh, the social media discourse. And there are things that I recommend in the book, such as a crowdsourced stream of news. It turns out there's studies showing that Republicans and Democrats, when they rank news sources, end up converging on the top 20. So we have a common vocabulary. There are a lot of things that social media companies can do uh, that they currently aren't doing that would improve our uh, public digital public sphere. Ed writes, any thoughts on the negative effects of climate change, of cryptocurrency in particular? Adding more carbon-free power for cryptocurrency means there's less available to replace coal plants around the world. Well, it's, we definitely want to incentivize green mining. Uh, just to put things in perspective, uh, currently the uh, Bitcoin uh, or cryptocurrency is probably 0.1% of all global energy. And uh, there's ways that it can be incentivized to use uh, uh, renewable energy. And there's ways that can be incentivized uh, also to have a low demand response. So it's using energy uh, when uh, it, it, not at peak times. The one thing with the mining is it doesn't have to be located right next to an energy source. So I agree that we want to be incentivizing uh, the clean uh, energy use of uh, cryptocurrency. Well, from Ukraine to clean energy, Congressman Kana, it, you are so flexible and fast on your feet. <laughs> How do you manage well, it's it? it's a great audience. <laughs> it always reminds me of why I love representing the Bay Area. The voters often know much more on, on subjects than, uh, than the congressperson, but they, I, I always have someone have some insightful thing, and then I basically parrot it, it, parrot <laughs> it to my colleagues, and it makes me look smart. That's true. This audience is awesome. Thank you all so much for joining in this conversation with Congressman Ro Khanna this hour, U.S. Congressman for California's 17th Congressional District in Silicon Valley. His new eminently readable book, by the way, Dignity in a Digital Age. I'm Rachel Myro. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.